Well, good morning. As, uh, as Pastor Jeff said, I wear a decent amount of hats. Um, before I open God's Word with you this morning, I just want to say a few things. So I am here to open God's Word and, and preach God's Word. I love preaching God's Word and opening it together with God's people. Um, but I'm also here representing Sound Christian Academy. I'm here with Greg Olson, who's our Director of Admissions. We have a booth set up there in the back. We would love to chat with you um, afterwards and um, tell you how you can participate in helping Sound Christian Academy continue to provide quality Christian education um, to families. We would love to, to chat with you. Um, we'll be there after the service for just a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open to Mark chapter 8. I will have a few words of introduction before we get there, but Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at the first 21 verses. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about a time, because I'm sure all of us have had this happen to us, where you were distracted by something less important and you missed what was right in front of you, or you missed what you should have been paying attention to. Um, sometimes this happens while we're driving. I don't know if you ever watch drivers as you go and I'm wondering why this person isn't staying in their lane, and often they're looking down at something. Uh, I'll let you guess what that is. Um, I remember as a child, often being told by my parents to go do something, um, and then five minutes later, wonder why I hadn't done that. Well, I was in my own world. I didn't hear them, is so what I said. And now as a parent, I've heard those same excuses. I didn't hear you, Dad. Um, as a teacher, I've been a Bible teacher at TBS and Sound Christian Academy for 10 years. Um, you, you spend time, you write things out on the board, you give instructions, you, you ask if there's any questions, and then you ask ask them to do what they're, they're supposed to be doing, and hands go up, and what are we doing? <laughs> they weren't paying attention. The thing that's right in front of them is missed, and something less important, the distractions are, are getting a hold of them. Um, sometimes, often, our phones are a distraction, and I think we like to beat up on the teenagers for that, uh, but I, I sometimes feel that it's, it's us or even grandparents that are more distracted by phones than, than our teenagers and our children. Uh, recently, as I've taken the, the job, the position as interim head of school, I've been a little busier than I normally have been, and there have been times where my six-year-old daughter will say to me, uh, Dad, no phones, no screens, and I'm, I'm chagrined and put it away. Um, but I'm missing what's in front of me. My children are more important than the email or the text that I'm looking at, but they're a distraction and I'm missing the main point. Among the many themes of Mark's gospel, one of the most prominent is that of discipleship. It's becoming, growing, learning. The word disciple means a learner. And I think it's kind of cool that you have the disciples are called disciples throughout the gospels. And then in Acts, they're called apostles. They are learners and then they're sent out. Apostles are those who are sent out. So this is a training ground. This is school for the disciples. And perhaps you know this, but the disciples were probably teenagers or in their younger 20s. These are not the way I imagined them when I was younger, big burly men um, who are fishermen that have been doing this for 20, 30 years. No, they're, they're younger people. And they're in the process of learning and growing and following Jesus and learning what it means to be a Christ follower. But there are many misunderstandings and missteps and missed points along the way, which we will see in our text this morning. The Gospel of Mark is probably an account of Peter's experiences walking with Jesus. Many of us love Peter because we can identify with him. 
He's somebody who has his foot in his mouth often, somebody who drops the ball, somebody who misses the point, and we, we love to identify with that. We're not the only ones who miss the point and have our foot in our mouths. I have a picture in my, in my classroom that I love of Peter, the Apostle Peter, being crucified upside down. And what I love about this, this painting and this picture is the growth of discipleship with, with the apostle. That he is this person who says, I don't know Jesus. And he curses and swears and wants nothing to do with him. And then at the end of his life, he is willing to be crucified rather than deny Jesus. So I love this picture of discipleship. And the Gospel of Mark is likely the apostle's Peter's, Apostle Peter's experiences as he relates to Mark. And if you know the story of Mark, Mark also has a story of discipleship that I think is pretty cool. But the structure of the book is centered around two questions. The first question is, who is Jesus? And the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark is centered around this question. Now, as a reader of Mark, we know the answer. Verse 1, Mark 1.1 1, 1, says that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But as Jesus performs miracles, as he casts out demons, as he speaks with authority, people continually ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this who speaks with such authority? There's something different about Jesus. But the only people, or I, know I shouldn't call them people, but the only ones who know the answer to the question are the demons. And Jesus is telling them to be quiet and not to proclaim his, his news. But the disciples are wondering, who is this person? There's something different about Jesus. And in the second half of chapter 8, really the story that comes immediately after what we'll look at today, we finally get the right answer. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're Elijah or you're one of the prophets or you're John the Baptist. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Finally, we have the right answer. But then we have a shift in the second half of the book. We have a shift in the second half of the book where the question moves from who is Jesus, he's the Messiah, to what does it mean to be God's Messiah? What kind of a Messiah is he? Because the picture that the Jewish people of the day had of a Messiah was that of a warrior Messiah. I, perhaps, and I don't have time for a long history letter, lesson, but I think perhaps the, the figure that would most arise in their minds when they thought of Messiah was this fellow named Judas Maccabeus. And Maccabeus means the hammer. Judas Maccabeus was this man who drove out the Greeks. He purified the temple. He was somebody who who was a Jewish folk hero. And if you actually look at the names of all of the disciples uh, and the names of people on bone boxes in Jesus' day, you'll see lots of Judases, lots of Simons, lots of Johns. In fact, most bone boxes, most people uh, who lived in those days, they were named after people associated with the Maccabees. They were the folk heroes, the people who drove out the invaders, the people who drove out the Gentiles, the, the heroes, the warriors. And so when, when Jesus is, in Jesus' context, when people were asking, well, what does the Messiah look like? He's somebody who is a warrior. He's somebody who drives out the enemy. He's somebody who's strong. So Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And then he says something that doesn't follow at all. I'm going to be crucified by the Romans. And the disciples are confused. And you may remember Peter says, well... <laughs> Lord, that's not true. He rebukes Jesus. 
So Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? Well, you should get behind him and obey him. But instead, Peter rebukes him. It's the wrong response. So Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter forbids it. A little later in the text, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And the disciples argue about who's the greatest. If you're following a Messiah who came to die, who's the greatest is the wrong response. Jesus says a third time in the Mark Gospel of Mark, I'm going to die. And they are arguing about who will be on his right hand and left hand when they come to the kingdom. So they miss the point of who he is. They finally get the point of who he is. And they miss the point of what it means. And we're going to see again in this text that they are missing the point of what's going on. All right, so that's the overview of the book. I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing chapter 7 because I think it's important to setting the context with what we'll look like at chapter 8. I'm a context guy, so there's a lot of context. But chapter 7 begins with a discussion on what defiles a man. What defiles a person? Pharisees in those days were concerned. So remember, Israel is an occupied country. You have Romans, you have Gentiles who are living um, throughout the land of Israel. They are, they, in the Jewish mind, in the, Gentile, in the Pharisees' mind, they are making the land unclean. They are making the land an abomination. And the Pharisees want to be removed about that. So it was really important for the Pharisees that when they came home from the marketplace— that they wash their hands in a ceremonial way. It wasn't about cleanliness. It wasn't about uh, avoiding the spread of disease. It was about being cleansed from the Gentile impurities of those who are around them. So we need to clean the outside of our bodies so we're not defiled by the Gentiles. That was the concern. And Jesus shows them how they're using their traditions in order to circumvent the law. The law says to honor your father and mother. But the the Pharisees at that time would take property and declare it dedicated to God, Corbin, in order to avoid um, using it to provide for their parents. So they are doing something that on the outside looks righteous, on the outside looks as if they're, they're focused on God and they love God, but their real intent is to disregard the law of God. And Jesus' argument here is it's what's on the inside that defiles you, not what's on the outside that defiles you. And immediately following, we see an illustration of this. And this is where chapter 8 and chapter 7 are really focused together. You kind of have to follow the train. So Jesus goes into a Gentile country, and one of the stories I'm most uncomfortable with in all, in all of the Gospels is he meets this Syrophoenician woman. Syrophoenician woman is, uh, she would be from the area uh, where Jezebel came. And if you are a good Jewish reader of the day, you hear Syrophoenician woman, you might immediately think of Jezebel, which, if you don't know the story, is not a wonderful character. (laughs) So he meets a Syrophoenician woman, and she has a, a daughter who is possessed by a demon, and she's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus, heal my daughter. And Jesus says, is it right to give to the dogs what is intended for the children? wow, is this this the Jesus of the Gospels? Is it right to give to the dogs what is um, for the children? And her response to me is one of the most touching in the the Gospels of all the people that Jesus heals. She says, even the dogs, and, and the word here for dogs is really more like the word for household dogs or puppies, you might say, but still, I don't think you'd like it if I called you a puppy. But even the puppies get the crumbs from the table. Even the puppies get the crumbs from the table. And Jesus doesn't give her crumbs. 
he heals her daughter. She has the full healing. This isn't a crummy healing. It's a full healing. So her daughter's healed, and Jesus has more than enough for her. But this story should be in in the back of your mind as we move into chapter 8 here in a minute. Then he moves from healing the Syrophoenician's daughter to healing a deaf man, and he's still in Gentile territory. And the way he heals the deaf man, who has a a speech impediment as well, is, is telling. He puts his finger in the man's ear, and he puts his finger on the man's tongue. So if you were a good Jewish person, touching a Gentile, or being in the marketplace, not even touching the Gentiles, just being around Gentiles, makes you unclean. Here, Jesus is putting his finger in the man's ear, putting his finger on his tongue. He's not worried about being defiled from the outside. He heals the man with the speech impediment. But from a Jewish perspective, from a Pharisee perspective, from those religious people of Jesus' day, everything Jesus is doing is unclean. Everything Jesus is doing is wrong. He's giving crumbs to the Gentiles. He's giving crumbs to the dogs, which is a common phrase that um, Pharisees used for Gentiles in those days. He's putting his finger on the tongue of a Gentile man, that Jesus is doing those things which in their view is defiling. But the real problem, the real defilement that Jesus is warning the Pharisees against and his disciples is the defilement of the heart. It's the dangers of a hardened heart. So this morning, we're gonna look at Mark chapter eight, And in Mark chapter 8, we're going to see three connected episodes with three distinct responses to Jesus. In the first episode, Jesus repeats an earlier miracle. He provides bread for a crowd of people in the wilderness. But there's one huge difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. These people are Gentiles. He's providing bread for Gentiles in the wilderness. In the second episode... Instead of being amazed at what Jesus is doing, instead of Jesus' works and signs leading to repentance, we see the religious leaders demanding a sign from heaven. We see that they have hardened hearts. And for some, and we see this in the text, belief is not about evidence. Belief is uh, rejected because we have a hard heart, and we see that in the Pharisees. And finally, we'll see the disciples who have been along for the ride all the way, miss the point. They're worried about bread after Jesus feeds the 4,000 when they should be concerned about the hardness of their own hearts. I'd love to pray for us as we open God's word together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is a light to our path, that it helps us to know the truth, that through your word we can know Christ, that through your word we can know how we are to please you, that through your word we are fed, that through your word we are given wisdom. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. Father, help us not to have hardened hearts. Help our hearts to be softened. Father, if we need the gospel this morning, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will draw people to place their faith in Jesus Christ and soften hardened hearts. And Father, we know that as as believers, we still need the gospel. And sometimes we're still resistant to the gospel. So I pray that you'll harden our, uh, soften our hearts. Father, help us to see your word. Help us to see the truth in your word. Help us to see how you want us to respond. Help us to see your goodness 
and your provision and your kindness. And we pray in the, the name of your son, Jesus, the only name that saves and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. There's three episodes. I'm going to read them as we go. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, this is Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed people with bread here in the desolate place? And he, Jesus, asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people and before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamathua. So although there are many similarities here between this story and the feeding of the 5,000, with which you probably are, are more familiar, there are also some key differences. First, there is some growth here on the part of the disciples, and it, it may not be obvious to you as you look at it, but in chapter 6, where we had the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples say to Jesus, we need to send away the crowd. It's impossible to feed them. Here there's no protest of impossibility. So that's at least some progress, at least some growth. Um, here, essentially what they're saying is uh, asking Jesus what he intends to do. They're bringing the problem before him. It wouldn't be right of him, especially in the Gospel of Mark as we see responses, it wouldn't be right of them to presume that Jesus is going to perform a miracle. Jesus performs miracles when he performs miracles. But if we demand a sign from him or demand a miracle for him, that's not good discipleship either. So in, in one sense, they don't ask for a sign which is asking for a sign is a signal of unbelief, and they bring it to Jesus without protesting it as impossible. So some growth. We'll give them credit for that. Secondly, this miracle takes place among Gentiles and not among uh, Jewish people. Um, The phrase at the beginning, in those days, connects the story to the previous two stories, which took place among the um, Gentiles. And these people have come from far away, which suggests the rugged terrain of the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region. So this is a miracle among Gentiles. Jesus is going to finish this story by crossing the lake back to the Jewish side. And finally, this is a crowd that is listening to Jesus. This is a crowd that's not just looking for a handout. These are people who are following Jesus. The word Mark uses to describe the crowd, gathered around, indicates a commitment This isn't just they want to see what's going on. They're intentionally remaining with him. And they've been with him for three days, likely without eating anything during this time. So this is a crowd that really, they're they're hungering for the words of Jesus. They're hanging on his words. They're with Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. And notice Jesus' compassion. No one comes to Jesus and asks, will you feed us? Jesus is the active agent here. He sees their need. No one asks, but he sees the need, he has compassion, and he provides. He takes the seven loaves and a few fish. The word here probably indicates something similar to a sardine, and he breaks it and he gives it 
to the crowd. Now, the provision of bread in the wilderness should immediately bring to mind God's provision for his people in the Exodus. But here we see that Jesus is providing for the nations, not just for the Israelites, not just for the Jews. In the ancient world and today, table fellowship is an important sign of inclusion and exclusion. I don't know what, if you call uh, the Lord's Supper or communion here, but both of those relate to fellowship, to unity, communion with God and communion with one another. In our context, perhaps you remember being in high school or middle school, which table you sit at, you sit at says something about whether you're included or excluded. If you have no place to sit, you're an outsider. Or maybe you sit at the cool table, or maybe you sit at the not cool table, or maybe you don't know which table that you sit at, but the the table that you sit at indicates inclusion or exclusion. We see this in the Gospels. Jesus sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners brings suspicion. Like, why are you including those people? Those people are on the outside. Jesus later in the book of Luke, but later in the narrative, the story, he eats with Zacchaeus, which is surprising to many. And this is a sign of inclusion. Moving into the book of Acts, if you remember Peter, who goes to Cornelius' house, and he gets, he gets criticized for it. He has to defend himself in Acts chapter 10, was a sign that God is including the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Or perhaps you remember Peter in Galatians chapter 2, showing great hypocrisy because he won't eat with the Gentiles when his Jewish friends are around. Because who you sit with, who you eat with, indicates inclusion or exclusion. So Jesus is not just providing bread. He's also indicating inclusion. He's also indicating that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. Remember the Syrophoenician woman asking for crumbs. Crumbs of what? Crumbs of bread. And he provides a full healing, not just part of a healing. And here, Jesus doesn't provide crumbs to the crowd. He provides a full meal. He provides bread. He provides fish. I think there's some symbolism here also in the leftovers. Um, Numbers aren't mentioned accidentally. So seven in, in the Bible is often a number that indicates a whole or 70. There are 70 nations in the table of nations in Genesis. There are seven days of creation. So seven leftover baskets for the nations is, is supposed to help you remember that this is indicating that Jesus is providing for the nations. In the other healing, I mean, in the other feeding of the, of the 5,000, there are 12 baskets left over, and 12 is a number that indicates Israel or the Jewish people. So there's provision for Israel, and there's provision for the nations. And in both feedings, there is more than enough. There is more than enough. There are leftovers beyond what is needed. Even the words describing Jesus' prayers here are different in each case. In the feeding of the, of the 5,000, it says that he said a blessing, which is a Jewish way. You bless your meal. You're really blessing God. I don't know if you've sat through a Seder or a Shabbat before, but the, the prayers that they say, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, that Jesus likely said something similar to that. So he says a blessing when he feeds the, the, the 5,000, the Jewish crowd. Here, in the feeding of the 4,000, I think this is something that Mark's audience would have been attentive to. Maybe it passes over our heads, but he gives thanks And giving thanks comes from the word that we get the word Eucharist from. He gives thanks for the bread. So he is providing bread for this group of Gentiles. He is giving thanks for it. And I think Mark's audience would have thought of the Lord's Supper 
or of communion. And in the Lord's Supper in Mark chapter 14, I think it's interesting if you look at it, he does both. He blesses the meal and he gives thanks, including full inclusion for both Jew and Gentile. So after this feeding, Jesus gets up, he goes back to the Jewish side of the lake, and he's going to have an encounter with the Pharisees. And this story completes a series of miracles performed among Gentiles, providing crumbs, quote unquote, to the dogs, touching the ears and tongues, a tongue of a deaf man, um, sitting down to eat with a Gentile crowd. I think what the text is indicating to us, the external does not defile. The external does not defile. Jesus is doing all of these things, which in his context, people saw as defiling, but Jesus is bringing healing, and now he's leaving and going back into clean country. So picking back up in the text, Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Contrast, the, the crowds gathering around Jesus for three days, hanging on every word. Jesus crosses the lake. Immediately, these people come to test him, demanding a sign. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and he got into the boat and went to the other side. So upon returning to regions closer to home, he's accosted by Pharisees, demanding a sign from heaven. This demand shows their hardness of heart. We've seen that Jesus is able. If you've been following through the, the first eight chapters of, of Mark in the, in the narrative of the text, you know that Jesus is able. But this demand shows their refusal to believe. And they're not just asking for a miracle. There's a difference in the Gospels between asking for a miracle and a sign. They're, a sign is they're asking for authentication. Like, prove you really are from God. Prove who you are. They're not just asking for a miracle. They're, 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 they're showing that they don't believe that Jesus is from God. So the Gentiles who are far off are closer to Jesus than many of his own people, similar to Mark chapter 6 in, in, the, um, in Nazareth, in his hometown, where he does few miracles. Here he says, um, you, will give, you will get no sign. So in response, Jesus is groaning inwardly. This groan is not a groan of anger. It's not really a groan of frustration. It's a groan of profound sadness. Profound sadness. The issue is not lack of evidence, but lack of faith and trust. And Jesus' response echoes Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35, with the, the people in the wilderness. And, and Jesus, uh, God says that not one of the men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to your fathers. These, these Pharisees, they won't see a sign, just like their great-great-great-great-grandfathers will not see the land. And as the light that is given to them has been ignored, these Pharisees will lose what light they have, no sign given to them. Jesus gets back in the boat and leaves them on the shore. So in chapter 7, remember, Jesus said it was the heart that defiles. So let's see if we're following what's going on better than the disciples. It's the heart that defiles. It's not the external. He follows this with casting out a demon out of a Gentile woman's daughter, touching the tongue of a deaf Gentile man, providing for and sitting down with a Gentile crowd. The Gentiles, although from a Jewish perspective are unclean, they have hearts ready to follow. They have hearts ready to listen. On the outside, they're defiled, but their hearts are clean. They have the right heart 
They have the right response to Jesus. The Syrophoenician woman humbly asks for crumbs from the table. A crowd follows Jesus in the wilderness, willing to go hungry rather than leave him. Jesus heals many people, even their garments, um, even touching his garment brings healing. But as he comes back to the land of his own people, he's met by disbelief. The religious elite of the people demand a sign. They refuse to believe that Jesus is from God. Their hearts are hard. The Pharisees, so concerned about external defilement, are defiled internally. They have defiled hearts. So back on the boat. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Pause. Who are they with? (laughs) They're with Jesus. (laughs) They don't have bread. Is this a problem? Probably shouldn't be. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, if, if, you, if you know kind of the symbolism of the Bible, leaven um, is, a, is a common picture in the Old Testament of something that corrupts. It just takes a little bit and the whole thing is changed. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they, the disciples, began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Remember, what's the danger? Hardened hearts. They're worried about bread. And the the danger, the real danger of having a hardened heart is, is right in front of them. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves, For the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And I wish there was tone here, but it sounds sheepish to me. They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? So yeast is this popular picture of corruption, contamination. The Pharisees, so worried about external corruption, Uh, are in danger, and not just danger, they have hardened hearts bringing internal corruption. And their rejection of Jesus is going to lead to a larger rejection of Jesus at the end of Mark's gospel. The Pharisees and Herod here are both mentioned as as those with the, the corruption, have nothing in common with each other. If you know anything about the Pharisees and the Herodians, these are not groups that are in harmony. They both despise each other. The one thing that they have in common is that they don't believe in Jesus that they reject Jesus. So that's the corruption. The corruption is this heart that's going to lead to rejection of Jesus. The corruption is unbelief. The disciples are clueless, but they're in danger. They're in danger because they don't have a heart of faith. They're running out of bread. And instead of turning to Jesus and trusting him, they're worried about it. They have the, the beginnings of the yeast of, incorruption, of corruption in their heart. They have the begin, there's danger here. Having witnessed Jesus feed the crowds of 4,000 and of 5,000, bread should be the least of their worries. But they have a heart problem. They have a heart problem that doesn't trust and rely on God. This phrase that Jesus says to them, do you have eyes to see that don't see and ears to hear but don't hear, it was applied in the parable of the sowers to the, the hard soil, the soil that was not ready to receive the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus' message. And they really are in danger. This is not just hypothetical danger. One of their number is going to reject Jesus and betray him. 
It's not just a hypothetical danger. One of, the, the, one of those who was closest to Jesus, who saw every miracle that he performed, who walked with him, heard his teaching, is going to betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified. This is a very real and present danger. But the problem with the disciples here is that they are so stuck in their own world, <laughs> we have no bread, that they're missing what they should be seeing and understanding what Jesus is trying to teach them. Again, I, I'm going to use some teaching illustrations, but there are times I'm teach, I, I teach Bible. I've been a Bible teacher for 10 years. One of my favorite things to talk about is the Trinity. And there are always times where you're, you're talking about the Trinity, trying to help, people, help your students understand, okay, one God, three persons. <laughs> There's, there, we're not going to mix, mix the pe- persons up with the, with the essence of God, all these sorts of things. So you're talking, you're trying to explain, looking for light bulb moments. Then you see a kid you think is paying attention, you think is getting it, and their hand goes up. And you're a little bit excited. And they ask, do dogs have dreams? <laughs> and you want to bash your head into the, into the podium. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Or a kid who never, never speaks up in class and they raise your hand and, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> it's so deflating. And here it's the same thing. Jesus is trying to teach them. It's an important lesson. It's an important lesson. Look, they have hardened hearts. They're not believing. Beware, be careful. They're like, oh, we don't have bread. We don't have bread. Their real concern should be their hearts, but they are, are, are failing in their faith. The one who provides bread in the wilderness repeatedly is with them, and they're worried about bread. So how do we respond to this text? What do we see about God? First, we see about God in the person of Jesus. He has compassion. I love that he sees the need of this crowd before they even ask. He sees them. And friend, he sees you. He has compassion on you. He sees you. He knows your heart. He wants you to go before him and pray, but he knows your needs before you ask. He sees. He has more than enough. There's a little bit of, of, of maybe hypocrisy in myself preaching this, this message. I, I had trouble sleeping light last night, worried about something. You ever had that happen? And you wake up and you're, oh, I'm preaching on a text. <laughs> that Jesus sees me, that he has compassion, that his provision is more than enough. This is preaching the gospel to ourselves, that no, Christ is enough. He is enough. I think there's communion here as a picture. So when, when we take communion, communion is a picture. The Syrophoenician, most of us are, are Gentiles. This Gentile woman asks for crumbs, and she gets the whole loaf. Jesus has more than enough. These Gentiles, who would be called dogs, from the, by the insiders, there is bread enough for them with baskets full to spare that Jesus is more than enough. When we celebrate communion, we're not receiving a partial atonement for our sins. We're remembering that Jesus paid it all. All of our sin is covered. We're not receiving crumbs from the table. We're receiving the whole loaf that Jesus died for your sin and he provided for your sin and Jesus' provision is more than enough. In this text, we see three responses to Jesus. The first is that of the crowds and this really should be our response. Hungering after the words of Jesus, hanging on his words, hungering for God's word, hungering for the truth, caring more about it than bread. And Jesus was able to provide both for their spiritual and their physical sustenance. 
Where are you looking for sustenance? Where are you looking for provision? Again, Jesus is more than enough. The second response we see is that of the Pharisees. They didn't come to listen. They came to argue. They came to dispute. They take the place of the mockers and the scorner, scornful. And they lost even the light that they had. A hard heart is a heart that can't be convicted. A hard heart is a heart that can't repent. A hard heart is that which can't learn, can't see the truth. This is a danger for both believers and unbelievers, that we would harden our hearts. We can harden our hearts in an active way that we notice, but we can also harden our hearts slowly in a passive way, and we, we don't notice, and we're at danger of having hardened hearts without even realizing. And I think that's true of the disciples. They're so caught up with their earthly concerns that they're missing the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them. They have hardened hearts to what they're supposed to be learning, and they're in, they're in danger. This is true with us. During trials and difficulties, perhaps God is teaching us to learn dependence and to learn trust, but we look other places, and we don't learn dependence and trust. That's a hardened heart. During times of plenty and provision, we need to learn gratitude, but perhaps we, we rest on our own laurels or see, say, look what I built, like the rich man in the parable. And we have hardened hearts that aren't soft to learn what God is teaching us. I don't know your heart this morning, but God does. I don't know your heart, but God does. What should you be learning? What is God trying to teach you? What is God's spirit trying to teach you as you go through trials and difficulties or times of plenty or times of less? And finally, the the gospel. I don't know your heart this morning. Once again, God does. Perhaps God is working in your heart to draw you to saving faith. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your need for repentance. And the offering of the whole loaf, the offering of Jesus' sacrifice for your sin, freely given, offered to you as a gift that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and he was raised for your justification. Perhaps God is drawing you. Don't harden your heart. There's a danger You may lose even the light that you have. You may lose even the light that you have. Maybe God is teaching you dependence. Maybe you, like the disciples, are looking in the wrong places. Your focus is in the wrong place. Today's text is both a warning and a comfort. Both a warning and a comfort. Jesus is able to provide. Jesus is able to satisfy the longing of the human heart. He's able to provide for your physical needs and your spiritual needs. But the danger is that we can harden our hearts even without knowing it and miss what is right in front of us. I want to close with reading Psalm 1. I think Psalm 1 helps us to see a a contrast between a hardened heart and a softened heart. A softened heart delights in the Word of God wants to listen and meditates on the Word of God. It's thinking about the Word of God. It's, It's directing his path. He is growing like a tree. A hard heart there's, is moving in the wrong direction. They walk with the wicked. They stand with the sinners. They sit in the seat of the scoffers. The seat of the scoffers is the seat of the Pharisees here. And there's a contrast between the heart, I think this is about the heart, between the heart of the man who delights in the law of the Lord and the heart of the man who does not. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Love this verse. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that through your word you feed us, that through your word you provide for us. Father, thank you that you are not a God who only sees our spiritual needs, but that you see our physical needs as well. That you are a God who has compassion, that you are a God who sees. And so, Father, we come before you as needy people. We have physical needs and we have spiritual needs. We are weak in our faith, we are weak in our confidence, we are weak in our perseverance. We are hungry, and we don't always look to you. Father, I pray that you will protect us from a hardened heart. Help us to have hearts that are are ready to listen, hearts that are ready to obey, hearts that are ready to repent, hearts that are ready to see what you're teaching us, both in 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 our circumstances and our lives, and also in your word. Father, I pray for your people this morning, and I thank you that you have drawn your people to to salvation with you, that salvation and relationship with you, that you provided for us, not just bread, but that you provided for us Jesus, that our sins are covered, our sins are atoned for. We have eternity waiting for us with you. Father, I just pray that you will help us to be representatives of your kingdom to a world that is dark, help us to love those around us, Help us to have eyes that see and ears that hear what you have to teach us. And we pray in your son's name, the name of Jesus, the only name that saves. Amen.